you second print whippersnappers welcome back it is once again an episode not an issue the 15th episode actually of the second print comics podcast my god i can't believe we made it this far they, they said we never last but last we have and i am here as always of course with my co-host the rambunctious remzo martinez remzo how are things this is episode 15 but it feels like day two million of 2020 to believe <laughs> that we that we only premiered in august and now we're getting ready for for Thanksgiving and everything. It's been uh, it's been different for sure. It seems time is slowing down towards the end of the year. I don't know if you're noticing the same thing. You know, I saw Bill and Ted uh, in theaters like a month ago when it came out. Oh, you have theaters that must be so nice to we, live in a place where we those we, exist. we have a few. They're gonna close back down. But I saw Bill and Ted, and uh, I guess the film was done in 2019. At one point in the film, not this isn't a spoiler. They're like, "Wow, can this year get any stranger?" <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, this is some meta well, narrative right there. Hold my beer, <laughs> boy. We'll show you. All right. Well, uh, anything we want to tell these people first? We do have something we should probably just talk about up front oh, because we oh, have oh, a very oh, special, oh, oh, amazing. Oh, 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 oh okay. do it. I can tell you. Ahead. I can tell you want to talk about it. I, I feel like you should because you're, you're even more excited than I. Am. Okay. 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 This is one of those things, and you, you don't think we listen to you, but we do. We do. Just yeah, like last sometimes. week's uh, last week's Nick Fury episode. How did Nick Fury turn into a black guy? That was not originally on the docket of episodes to record, but that was spoiler. It's not. It's not like the plot of the movie Soul Man, which is a great movie, but that's not how. So you got to listen to the last episode to find out what really happened. Yeah, but that episode is a case of you, the listeners, joining us on the Second Print Comics fan zone, just straight up asking us, hey, I don't know what this is. Whether you're a longtime reader or a brand new guy, you've got questions, you've got stuff you're aching to hear. Enough of you brought it up. So Mark and I sat down and we were like, you know, shoot, we should probably do this. How did Nick Fury turn into a black dude episode? And, uh, you know, talk about sacrificing for your fans. I think it's safe oh to say God. we both sacrificed a good amount of our time. Although we had fun recording it, not as much reading it, but that, and I won't say more. I want you guys to go listen to it if you haven't. Yeah. But what we've got coming up next is one of those episodes that you've really wanted. Mark and I put our heads together and we were like we gotta do something really special before the year is over and uh um, you know what mark you go ahead and do it all right well i actually don't even remember whose brainchild it was uh mine yours or someone else's but it it all came through the moira mctaggart's who's moira mctaggart's 14th timeline actually uh (laughs) but we are going to do something called an x-men draft Insert music if I decide. It's gonna stay in my head for at least five hours. What? What is the X Men draft? Can you say? Well, if you've done fantasy football, fantasy baseball, fantasy anything, uh, where you go through various rounds and draft players. In the case of fantasy sports, in this case, we'll be drafting comic book characters. We'll be drafting X Men characters into teams. And uh, you know, two of us doing a draft. I'm sure we'd have fun. It would be great. But we just felt that an X Men draft, something like this. Uh, was too epic to be done uh, just with the two of us. So we did invite a couple of special guests in. Uh, we've brought, got Jenny Smith, who is a, she does about a million podcasts, Talk and Pop, The Jenny Position, a whole bunch of different podcasts over both on the Place to Beat Network and the North-South Connection, where this very podcast airs every Sunday as well. She's a big comic book fan, big comic book aficionado. Uh, she'll be joining us as well as friend of the show, professional comic book artist, Matt Pataglia. Hell Yeah. 
What has Matt Pataglia done? Remzo, you've known him longer than I have, but we've both uh, interviewed him in, in our other lives. Uh, Matt Pataglia is an indie artist. He has done um, such comics as Indoctrination. That was one of my favorite series. That was great. That's what, I read that. That, that was amazing. Yeah, that, that's what, that's what kind of got him on the block. And uh, recently he did another uh, one-shot series of of uh, little vignette stories for Free the People, which you can go ahead and grab at freethepeople.com. It's a collection of all of his stuff. And what I really admire about uh, Matt's work is that there are not a lot of artists like him. I think when you look at his uh, specific style, it very much is in the vein of a Frank Miller and, dare I say, somewhat of a Jack Kirby-ish uh, lean, uh, but it comes out in in a way which you don't see in a lot of other writers. It's very rough, it's very rugged, but you get to see, um, you know, expressions and action in a way that you know feels like you're really getting pulled into the page. I know a lot of artists want their artwork to leap out at you, but it's like his stuff is like grabbing you by the throat and pulling you in, and uh, you know it's it, it's it's good. If you have not seen Matt's work before, just go ahead and Google Matt Battaglia, and uh, you're gonna see some awesome stuff right there. I would say I'm sure the check's in the mail, but the check's already been cashed because Matt sent both of us some awesome drawings. He sent me uh, an original uh, Savage Dragon uh, print that he did, and he sent you something as well. What, what did you get? He, he sent me uh, a rendition of the Steve Ditko drawing of Spider-Man under uh, rubble. I forget the specific issue, but it's that really iconic uh, Spider-Man cover where he's underneath some rubble and, you know, there's water coming up and it's about to drown him and he has to muster up the courage and the strength to use all his spider might to get out of there. It's an amazing issue. And uh, his rendition of Ditko's cover from that amazing Spider-Man issue is, is awesome. So much so, I got the inked version and the sketch version framed side by side. Kick ass. So uh, we will be doing that X-Men draft. We're going to be doing that live for our patrons over in the Second Print Comics Fan Zone on Facebook, a live video stream uh, exclusively for our patrons. So check out patreon.com slash secondprintpod. We will release that as a, a regular episode of this podcast at some point, probably maybe towards the holidays as a little special treat for everybody. But uh, if you want to see it live, if you want to see it, it's going to be happening this Tuesday. So make sure you sign up so you can see it live. Second Patreon.com slash secondprintpod. And we've been getting some great, uh, great new patrons in there. Uh, a lot of people coming in at that epic crossover level. A lot of people want those uh, those graphic novels every three months. That's that's a big hit. Yeah, absolutely. Everything from uh, from deceased, the hardcover of deceased to uh, actually, I, I was about to say killer be killed, but I'm trying to find the German <laughs> way of saying it, Mark. <laughs> oh, I forget what it was. I don't have it in front of me. Mark yeah, accidentally I, I, ordered someone hilarious. in America a graphic novel in German. Yes, it was our patron and a good friend of mine. He was actually the person who got me into comics. Uh, my friend Eric, uh, he got that. I was like, so how are you enjoying the book? And he's like, I think it's pretty good. I like the art. Um, I don't really know German, though. So I was like, oh, God, wait a minute. And I realized that the one I found on Amazon. And I was I was, cause I, I was, I was having trouble finding the hardcover. Uh, Did so you I, pay I, in euros? I, I now... I paid in dollars. Uh, I know why I found it so easily, though, because this was the German edition. So he was a good sport about it. We ended up uh, shipping him. He got two volumes of Killer Be Killed for for all his troubles. So hey, you, you you might even get more if you are if you're a patron and I mess up. You might even get two graphic novels. So you know you never know. It's it's quite possible with me. There you go. 
<laughs> All right, but uh, time to move on to today's topic at hand. And uh, we often review a comic book character, storyline, uh, that sort of thing, something that influenced us uh, specifically in our fanhood. Today, we're going to be, I guess, reviewing a comic book company. This is a, We're going to kind of do a deep dive on what is really the, I, I guess, at, at times it's even been the number two, but it's pretty much seen as the number three comic book company. That is, of course... Image Comics, we're going to be taking a look at the image revolution that took place in the early 90s. And uh, I think Remzo and I both watched this film called by the by the name of The Image Revolution. It's available on Amazon. It's available on Hoopla. Pretty good summary of, I'd say, the events that transpired. They also interview everybody involved. Uh, really, really well done. So I highly recommend checking that out for a really thorough history of The Image Revolution. But if you don't want to watch it, have no fear. We are here for you. The Second Print Comics podcast is here to service you in any way you liked, be it with an X-Men draft or by taking a deep dive on Image Comics, because a lot of people have come into comics uh, later in life like you did. A lot of people came around when Image was already established. But Remzo, I was there on the ground. I was there as this was happening. I became a fan when Todd McFarlane was huge with Marvel, uh, when Eric Larson was huge with Marvel, when all these guys actually made that move. And I just, I, I'm so glad that I became a fan right at that time because it was such a wild time. I mean, it was a time that comic books were getting in the news. I mean, this this actually, this move was all over the news. It was like a really big deal in the mainstream press. Uh, Marvel stock dropped when all these artists left. I mean, it was it was huge. And it was it affected people outside the comic book community. I mean, this is something that pe- like your, my dad actually knew about. I mean, it was, re- it was a really wild time uh, to be a fan and in many ways contributed to the boom in comics. And of course, by contributing to the boom, it of course contributed to the bus as well. So we're going to look at all of that today. But uh, what I want to know first, of course, Remzo, a little bit of your backstory. What is your history with Image Comics? In 2009, I was really starting to amp up my collection. I had started, uh, you know, mowing lawns for my neighbors while I was still in school, and I was getting a little bit of pocket change. And it all went towards two things, movies and comic books. I had to go to the movie theaters with my friends, and I had to buy my comics. And I remember uh, when iTunes was, like, really the thing at the time, uh, Motion Comics was something that that different publishers were experimenting with. You had Astonishing X-Men, Black Panther, and a few other Motion Comics, but one that really caught my eye was something I hadn't seen on the racks as a print comic before. This was actually my first exposure to it. It was a series called Invincible. And if Invincible sounds familiar, it's by creator Robert Kirkman, who's by far raking in that Walking Dead money until the end of time. And uh, the uh, the I think Invincible actually is coming to Amazon as an animated series in 2021. So I feel like I've just watched this for 10 years go from, you know, something that was kind of a... Co- kind of a comic gaining traction to reaching a larger audience of that motion comic series but now it's going to be something that the whole world is going to know so that was my exposure and like through everything else you know the the rabbit hole was there i got into the walking dead around 2009 2010 when that came out from there uh, i ran to the old spawn movie and then everything else is history young blood uh cyber force you name it, Mark Silvestri and uh, Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee. I just started collecting their work based off their work and not necessarily the titles they were working on. They're, they're some of the few artists where I will buy a comic just to look at the pictures and nothing else. 
Since I returned to comic book fanhood, as, as I've discussed multiple times on this program, and I go into detail uh, in on our episode zero, our secret origins episode, click way back to the beginning of the podcast feed if you want to find that one. Um, I took maybe about a decade off of comic books around maybe 2004 or so. I kind of just waned away, went drifted off into adulthood, thought I left that part of me behind and then came roaring back around uh, 2013, 2014. And uh, the two books that I read in their entirety from beginning to end. Um, once I got back in, once I heard about them and, and found out about them, were Invincible and The Walking Dead, and I, I've read I've read the entirety of both of those series, and I was lucky enough with both of them to get into them. Um, right as like I, I read everything up to the point in time that we were at, and then I was reading both of them currently, and I got to both their ends in real time. So I got to do the binge reading. I got the pleasure of binge reading, and also got to naturally see the end. You know, the end of the stories without being spoiled on them ahead of time. So I kind of got the best of bo- both worlds there uh, with both of those series. And those are, to this day, uh, two of my favorite comic book runs of all time, maybe two of the best comic runs of all time. If I had to go back and read the entirety of any comic book series, those are two that are just right up there because they're just they're just two of the best, best books I've ever read. And it's almost amazing that it's the same writer because they're two vastly, vastly different books and just incredibly gripping, incredibly compelling. Uh, you think you know where things are going and you never do. And uh, it's it's just a ride that I'm, I'm sure these are books we're both going to look at uh, at some point down the line. So we'll, we'll table that, the conversation about those for now. But I can just say, like, if. If if you are have any interest in uh, if you think you've if you've seen The Walking Dead and you think that's a good show, even if you don't, you're gonna love the comic. And I'll say the same for Invincible before the show even comes out. Uh, but that's for down the line today. We're gonna look at uh, the formation of the Image Company itself. And <clears throat> like I said, when I first became a fan in the early '90s, I got into all the things you get into: Spider Man, X Men. Etc. Etc. I was mostly a Marvel guy at first. I eventually ended up hopping over to uh, DC and getting into that stuff with the death of Superman, uh, with Batman Nightfall, as we discussed. In that I, I feel like Marvel and DC, even today in 2020, they're like the gateway drug. And then that's how you yeah, get into the others, to. like Image, Dark Horse, IDW, Dynamite. I know, but nowadays, I mean, Walking Dead was so so big. That comic exploded uh, with people that were getting into the comic from the show, many of whom had never read comics before. Many of whom took comics just as the you know cheesy spandex superhero stuff and then found a whole new world by getting into The Walking Dead. So you never really know. But yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, people are getting in through, especially now through, you know, hearing, you know, seeing the MCU movies or what have you and then finding the comic books. But uh you know, luck- luckily about a lot of these indie comics going ma- mainstream, uh, there's a lot of people that are coming in in various different ways that are, you know, I think, bringing in fans that wouldn't necessarily come in if they really thought comic books were just, uh, you know, the same old kind of cheesy. Uh, we know that they're not always cheesy, but they're seen as always cheesy superhero stuff. Yeah, I've got, I've got three examples of like what I call the flavor of of uh, of image other than just the Robert Kirkman books, um, Walking Dead and Invincible. One I got recently, this was um, recommended to me by one of my comic book guys at Painted Vision Comics. His name is Funky. So if you're ever in Loudoun and you go to Painted Vision Comics, walk in, you'll see a guy probably with a cigarette on his ear watching TV on his iPad. His name is Funky. Say hello to him. He recommended Stillwater. This is a series by uh, Chip Zdarsky and Ramon Perez. It's a horror comic, so it's got kind of that Stephen King vibe, but um, this is something that not a lot of people really do. They don't really do non-powered horror comics. I think Walking Dead really paved a way for that in a sense, and Stillwater. Um, it hasn't, I mean, it came out during the pandemic as comics were in and out of stores and publishing deadlines got mixed. I think issue two came out this month, so it was like a three-month spread, but, uh, you know, this has already been talked about getting nominated for some 
awards. And then this is uh, this is one that I actually pre-ordered. I usually don't pre-order comics early enough, but I had to do this. And I shared this in the Second Print Comics fan zone. A lot of you asked how you could get it, so I want to show it again. It's the Chadwick Boseman Memorial cover of Spawn issue 311 drawn by Todd McFarlane. There was no way I was not getting my hands on this. I have not actually read it yet. I bagged and board it, and when I have time this weekend, I'm going to. And you've got Spawn, who's like the baby of of uh, Todd McFarlane. This is still probably the crown jewel of Image. And then kind of round things off, Mark, this might bring back some memories. Youngblood issue zero. Oh, it does indeed. I have that very same comic uh, at, at, in the often mentioned vault of mine that exists. Is, is, this, not, is this not the most 90s cover you could possibly <laughs> think of? <laughs> It's it's basically every young bug cover, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean every every company has kind of like its lineup, its flavor, but with Image, my God, Image could not be more different. And I'll if you I'll, took the I'll, labels I'll off, back you from here. Yeah, I mean, if you took the label off, you couldn't necessarily identify an image book if you just you know looked at ten books. Hundred percent. Previously, know where they were from. Yeah. You would have no idea. You would see superhero. You would see stuff that looked like maybe it even came from Marvel or DC. You could see stuff that you know was super weird, super horror stuff. Uh, there's just a whole whole plethora of, uh, and that's what's great about image. That that's the point of image. And I think in many ways. We can say spoiler alert. Image did end up becoming, uh, despite all the, the turbulence along the way, becoming what the founders set it out to be. But uh, we'll get into just what that is and just who those founders are right now. I'm going to kind of go through the narrative as, as this movie pre- presented, and we can kind of you know talk about things through there. But this movie was, uh, I, like I said, so well done. It starts off with Todd McFarlane. It's footage of Todd McFarlane at a, a comic book. I, I go back and forth between McFarlane and McFarlane, and I'm, I'm never going to settle on one. It's just going to be however that flows well, out. Well, depending on what um, mood he's in, he even changes it. Exactly, but uh, but uh, but uh, he he has a great quote about uh, you know the difference between an employer, uh, an employee, and an entrepreneur, and he's like you know for for years and years and years, decades and decades and decades, uh, you know comic book artists, comic book creators were just employees, nothing more, and uh, the image basically took them and and turned it into a, a, a place where comic book writers, comic book artists, creators could actually be entrepreneurs, could actually build a business. For some for some that was great, for some that's not so great because not everybody who's a great creator is a great businessman and that's something we'll talk about uh but they also go into the story they go way back and talk about uh siegel uh, jerry siegel and are they both jerry's jerry and joel schuster Jerry and Joel, that's right. Uh, Jerry Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster and uh, how they created Superman for DC Comics. I think they got, I forget what the exact number is. I think it was like $130 they got for creating Superman and and basically were just paid as employees to draw it and, and create it after that. And then once they didn't, you know, that was it. They never got residuals. They never got anything from all the the, the movies, uh, the, the pop culture, uh, all the million places to see Superman merchandise they got. They didn't get a dime. And um, they also talk about Jack Kirby a bit too. I mean, Jack Kirby is probably one of the most one of, if not the most famous comic book creator it's of the all king, time. the king, mofo. He's created everybody, especially at Marvel. He's created everyone you have heard of. Uh, X-Men, Fantastic Four, Black Panther, uh, New Gods over at DC. I mean, he he has done so much. Uh, but Jack Kirby as well was someone who created all these characters for Marvel, but was just basically paid piecemeal. And, and you know, we could have arguments all day long about who's right and who's wrong. I mean, they weren't contracted as creators. They were just contracted as artists. And I don't think anybody at the time that these characters were be, being created ever envisioned, either the company or the creator, ever envisioned a world where these characters would become so huge such mega sensations that they would be worth the ownership of them would be worth literally like tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars each uh about these different properties so um of course 
that is the world that we're in now. And uh, many people will say it wasn't fair to those artists. Um, others will say that you know that, that these companies are big and greedy and evil. Uh, the truth is, there, there's truth all over the place to this stuff. Uh, everybody wants wants their fair share, and what seems like a fair share at the time doesn't always seem like a fair share later on uh, when you see what unfolds. Um, but we're not here to talk about the morality. We're here to tell a story, uh, and this is all setting up the story of what inspired the image creators to to go out and do their own. Because much like Jack Kirby, much like the uh, Siegel and Schuster would become, they became frustrated with the fact that they were creating all these cool characters for Marvel, uh, specifically for Marvel in this case, and really getting nothing from it. You know, they were just being paid, being paid quite well, mind you, because these were uh, some of the most successful artists in the business at the time. I mean, these guys were essentially rock stars. They're as close to rock stars as you can get uh, when it comes to the comic book community. Uh, But I mean, especially in the case of Rob Liefeld, I mean, he created Deadpool, he created Cable, he created all sorts of characters. Uh, those, Those all came from his brain. But you know, at the end of the day, those remained Marvel properties. Uh, so you know, they basically were faced with these these challenges where they they wanted to be creative. Uh, Todd McFarlane was actually given his own book because of that. He was given the Spider Man book. Uh, Rob Liefeld was also given control over several books. Uh, but it wasn't enough. It did, it didn't quite satisfy them enough. And um, McFarlane uh, was actually very successful. He had uh, with his the books that he uh, took control over. Spider Man One was, I think, at the time it, it would shortly be surpassed. Uh, was the I think the top selling comic of all time at about two million uh, copies sold. Uh, then Jim Lee, of course, would go on eventually to sell. I think after that it was X Force Number One, which I believe was like about five million uh, from. Yeah, Marvel. that just barely edged out uh, McFarlane's Spider Man issue one. And I mean, for the most part, yeah. like, think about this Spider-Man, you're dealing with probably the hottest Mar- Marvel property there is. And that wasn't even like the only Spider-Man book. He was one of five concurrent Spider-Man titles. So Spider-Man was coming out. Almost and we saw every- them all in Maximum Carnage. Yeah. Episode seven. Check it out. Yeah. And, th- and then for X-Force to come on scene, I mean, you're dealing with a title that is somewhat familiar, but was almost entirely brand new. So for that to even come in and outsell Spider-Man within, I think, about a year, that's saying something right there. Yep. And not long after that, we also saw uh, Jim Lee's X-Men number one become the number one selling comic of all this time, of all time, uh, a record that remains to this day, 8.2 million copies of X-Men number one. And I'm pretty sold, sure I owned a hundred of them until recently. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think we gave away like 20 of those to our patrons. <gasps> Uh, but that was all part of the, that speculative bubble that was forming at that time. Uh, and, you know, that that bubble, you know, when everybody expects something to be worth a lot and everybody goes in, so they print a million of them, kind of like U.S. dollars. We don't need to go there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just like in the case of X-Men number one, when you have a 2.2 million sold and everyone was trying to buy them, everyone did buy them. There was even more than that that were left over. So it really never became a, a truly valuable comic uh, in the financial sense. But uh, it is going to be I still predict that one day this will be way way valuable uh once once all the copies are get burned people start you know the economy collapses people use these x-men number one copies for uh kindling to keep warm at night but then at that point the second print comics podcast has become so big and it will then become again a collector's item because it was the very first comic book we reviewed uh back in issue issue darn it i did it. i've been doing so well lately back in episode number one when we looked at x-men mutant genesis uh, which started with that with that issue of course x-men number one so it all comes full circle. 
Uh, yeah, but the movie, uh, what, what do you think so far? Just the, the way the movie was setting things up, uh, going into the history of, uh, you know, of, of these famous creators that created all these characters that we know and love today uh, before sort of dovetailing into the uh, the present day, so to speak, of the documentary talking about the image guys, the eventual image Yeah, guys. there have been a ton of documentaries like this. This one specifically, which is available on on, uh, on Amazon, is probably the most popular one, but there have been multiple. There's been a, there's been a six-ish, there's been, I almost, you almost got me to say six-issue. There's a six episode short series on on um on by sci-fi on youtube there was the robert kirkman's uh comic books uh secrets of comic books or comic book secret series that was on amc that did a full hour long episode about it and then there was the recent todd mcfarlane like hell i won't series that was also produced i'm sorry a documentary film that was also produced over at sci-fi and depending on who's doing it you usually see one of two starts one kind of starts off as oh you've just got these young punks who are really good and they're really rich and they're really selfish so they go off and form their own thing and then what i liked about this is that it really showed that these guys weren't necessarily uh, you know, the ones that kind of rocked the boat, these were the ones that, you know, had been dealing with what was essentially decades of problems between publishers and primarily artists, not even writers. I mean, not, not that writers don't do a lot of their own work, but, it, you know, artists have a giant control over the material. So what this film does, as you mentioned, it really shows that this has been something that's been going on since the beginning of Superman. And it just so happened that these guys were bringing in so much money from Marvel specifically, they just got to the point where they're like, hey, I think we could do this ourselves. So I like the fact that it really showed a, you know, a 360 degree aerial view of the situation and didn't just start with, yeah, these guys came in, they're young, they do a lot of stuff, make a ton of money, get selfish and run. So I'm, I'm glad they started out this way. Especially uh, because of the fact, I mean, I think the big difference between Jack Kirby, Jerry Siegel, and all those guys, they created these characters at a time when, like I said, they had no idea these were going to become such huge pop culture icons. Um, and they were they were getting paid like, you know, regular people, almost. You know, they were not making bank off creating these characters or off drawing these characters uh, at the time. But uh, that is what was different between them and, say, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld. They were getting well paid, perhaps not as paid as they should be, considering all the money they were making for Marvel and DC. I mean, eight eight point two million for X Men number one, and what was that? Was that a two fifty episode issue? Two two dollars fifty cents? Oh Might have been $2. no, Even if it we was like a dollar seventy five. Okay, let's call it a dollar fifty, uh, just just for rounding purposes. Uh, so twelve million bucks. How much did Jim Lee see of that? Probably not even a million from that. Probably from that, from the sale of that one issue. You, you had to you had to negotiate your royalties, but then your royalties for certain titles, you also had to pay the editor, and that was something that's been a cause of a lot of contention because editors want to get their name on the on the comic, uh, whether they do a lot of work or not, because what that does is that secures royalties. Yeah, so this is like you said, an age old battle in comics, but uh, finally these guys they be, they all became friends in one way or another, got to know each other. Uh, Ra. Uh, you know, Todd was kind of the cheer, the uh, the not the cheerleader, the ringleader, uh, but also the cheerleader, I suppose, in many ways of a lot of these younger up and coming artists. He was a little bit older than them, had been around a little bit longer, had a little more cachet. Um, but these guys were becoming big hits in, uh, and household names in and of themselves. Uh, Rob Liefeld, I didn't even realize this till watching the documentary. He was actually in a, a, a jeans commercial. I think it was like a Levi's Levi commercial. jeans directed by Spike, Spike Lee. Lee, directed by Spike Lee. I mean, so these were these were becoming huge stars. So 
which is just crazy to think of. I mean, as successful as Jack Kirby was, as beloved as he is by comic fans, he's not a star. He's never on TV. I mean, nobody outside of comic nerds really, even today, probably really knows who Jack Kirby is. Whereas, you know, that is not the case of these guys. These, these guys are becoming mainstream names for their work in comics and for the popularity around the comic books they were doing. And I, I can definitely say, whereas I think the characters created by Jack Kirby were drawing the books, uh, were, were drawing the money for the books, were, were, were making these books popular. Um, at this point, with X-Men number one, X-Force number one, Spider-Man number one, it really is these creators bringing in the money. Uh, the characters were big, but they were never selling millions of books until these creators became attached to them because at this, it was actually the creators who were the big thing here. Uh, it was the, the the art of Todd McFarlane. It was the art of Rob Liefeld, the art of Eric Larson, of Jim Lee. Uh, that's what, what became, you know, that's what became so popular, their style of art, which in many ways was changing how comic book art, how superheroes were even drawn in the first place. Uh, just the more splashy sort of huge muscles, um, just sleek style of art that was very different than what was around uh, for their, pre- uh, you know, when their predecessors were were doing their comic books where things were, um, you know, a lot more cookie cutter, a lot more, uh, you know, very uh, strictly laid out panel wise, grid wise. And they were doing stuff that was just never done in comic books for uh, before with the layouts of the grids, how they would have certain panels splash over to under pa- other panels. Uh, there was really one that they showed um, in, in the film. I think it was a, uh, one of the Spider-Man panel where they showed Spider-Man's face and there was other panels going over it. And he's got a thought balloon and there's so much going on. And you just never did stuff like that. And they would even be told like, Oh no, we don't, we don't, we don't lay things out that way. You shouldn't do that. And they would just kind of be like, no, this is what we're doing. And, and it became really popular because it was different and it was cool. I mean, there's no other way to describe this stuff. It is cool the way these guys draw superheroes, the way these guys draw books. So they had developed not just success as artists, but success as names. I mean, they be, they became their own powerhouses. And that's why they were in a position to basically challenge the system for once and actually stand up and say, you know, you can give us what you want, what we want, or we're going to go do our own thing. And uh, Todd basically became the leader, uh, the ringleader, and uh, he became a big fan of what Rob Liefeld often refers to you. Do you want to do it, Remso? Do you want to put it out there? The L Boys, Liefeld, Larson, Lim, and Lee. The L Boys. <laughs> the L Boys, that's right. Jim Lee, Eric Larson, Rob Liefeld. Uh, Todd McFarlane became a big fan of theirs. They all got to know each other. Uh, sort of a brotherhood started to form between uh, the L boys and Todd McFarlane. McFarlane became a big advocate for all of them. Uh, he was always, you know, talking them up. Not that they really needed it because they were becoming huge uh, within their own. Oh, right. and, and before uh, we go, they, let's not let's not also forget Mark Silvestri. Oh, probably yeah, we're gonna toss him in yeah there. i mean he's probably they're they're all great but in terms of just you know uh with their pencil ship i don't think that's the right word he's probably the the best <laughs> sketch artist ever yeah, I mean, one of the like lesser names, I'd say, mainstream-wise, once you get outside of the comic book world, but arguably possibly the best penciler of them, yeah. depending on depending on your preference, depending on your taste. Um, let's see who else is involved. They also recruited. Well, we'll go along the line. They, you know, there's basically a brotherhood forming between these guys. Um, uh, I think Todd even said that that he saw Rob as actually the best illustrator. Um, but uh, even Rob, they said, was Rob was just get, kind of getting bored with comics at Marvel. Uh, you know, so they they all were starting to feel this this creative passion, and they and they put their creativity into these books and created these cool cool other characters. But they didn't get to do whatever they want with the characters because now they create them, and now Marvel. 
Marvel owns them and Mar- Marvel gets to take them in whatever direction they want. Marvel has to gets to get, get oversight over them. Uh, so they were all sort of uh, getting the urge in, in various ways, sort of on their own, uh, you know, as they started to come to this idea of, you know, do we do, do we need to remain in this system? Do, do we just go to DC where it's more of the same thing if we're unhappy? Well, it's not going to be any different there. If we create characters in DC, it's going to be the same thing. And, and, and they're going to own the characters. Yeah, too. and it wasn't even just the comics alone. It was also the merchandising because right. Marvel at the time, and this is also one of the reasons why years later Marvel is going to face so many financial issues, they had bought a sticker company. They had bought a bunch of other smaller businesses, so that way they could turn them basically into big merchandising arms. And, uh, you know, if they printed a T-shirt with cable on it, you you know, Liefeld wasn't getting of that any more of that merchandise. The big thing is uh, cards, trading cards, and toys. When Marvel started putting out toys for the X-Men line, they put out uh, stuff for all the generic X-Men that you would typically see, but they made a ton of money off the X-Men and X-Force line of action figures. And Liefeld, I think I think he, he jokes at some point, he didn't even get a free one. He had to go out and buy his own stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that uh, that Todd said in the movie. He's like, they could have kept. He said they could have kept them with very minimal effort. They just wanted to get some kind of compensation for all this other merchandise, all this other stuff that was going on. I mean, the creativity was part of it. It was part of their internal drive. But you know, it was really just the lack of respect that they saw at, at one point, where their Marvel's just making millions and millions and millions on all this merchandise, and they're not getting a single dime from it. Uh, and, and yeah, at one point in the, in the film, Todd even said, "Can we even just get like one copy of the T-shirt?" Like they didn't even get their own merchandise cop to them i mean it's like they just felt like there was no appreciation for their work ultimately and and you know we can look at money and all this stuff but ultimately what often drives people is a sense of pride and a sense that they're being respected and ultimately for pretty much all these guys that's what it really came down to at the end of the day uh todd even said they could have kept all of us for minimal effort but they didn't even put in that minimal effort to do so uh, so they did start to form this group, uh, the core four, the original core four of people that started talking and started discussing uh, breaking away from Marvel and doing their own thing was Todd McFarlane, Rob uh, Rob Liefeld, Eric Larson, who was huge on Spider-Man at the time, and uh, Jim Valentino. They also discussed a little bit earlier in the film, uh, a little bit of how some of these guys were creating their own characters as children. Uh, like Spawn was like the first character Todd ever created as a teenager. Uh, Eric Larson, uh, was, uh, Savage Dragon, was also the, the first character he created uh, You know, as, as when he was teenager as well so these are all it's amazing now seeing these these characters these books that have been around for decades now these were literally like not just random characters they dreamt up while working for some company these were their childhood creations and they had an opportunity here to actually bring them to life and uh, and that's an opportunity that they saw they actually had the power to do and they all you know looked at themselves and said you know what's the worst that could happen really what's the worst that could happen we fail Eh, so what? You know, I mean, they all had so much talent. They were never going to fail. Even if the company failed, even if the business model failed, these guys were going to be fine. These guys were going to get work. Maybe they'd have to go grovel back to DC or even Marvel someday, but these guys were going to be fine. So uh, eventually they did uh, kind of uh, go on to make this decision. Todd went to go recruit Jim Lee, and they said Jim Lee was actually the hardest sell because he was really happy. He, he was the he golden was actually, boy like, there. The editors yeah, he loved was him. Yeah, everyone at Marvel loved Jim Lee. He was never rocking the boat, uh, and he was perfectly happy there. Uh, he really didn't have these necessarily these daydreams of you know going off and being his own publisher, which I think is interesting because you know when we get down the go down the history a little later on, we'll we'll see him be one of the first people to to leave um, and, and kind of go back to to you know to 
to just being creative and not doing so much of the publishing himself. But uh, he they did eventually win Jim Lee over. Uh, Jim Lee was also friends with Wilshi Portasio. Uh, Wils Portasio, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Wils Portasio. Uh, so they recruited him, and then they finally recruited Mark Silvestri as well, who was uh, doing, I think, Uncanny X-Men at the time. Uh, so this became the seven artists that all got together and decided we're going to go together to Marvel, and um, we're going to say we're gone. We're going to go do our own thing. And I guess Silvestri, they said, was like at the last minute, like the night before, they're like, so what do you think? He's like, uh, yeah, I think I might be in. I'm not sure. And they're like, well, we're having a meeting at 10 a.m. tomorrow, so we need you there if you're going to do it. And he said, all right, I'm in. So they went to this meeting at Marvel, and I think Rob was describing it in the film, and, and they said basically like no one said a word except Todd. It was just Todd talking, Todd telling them what we're doing. And uh, and Rob said he looked at it as Todd was just punishing Marvel. Uh, because after the meeting, not only did, did they go and all give their resignation from Marvel and say, look, we're going to go form our own company, so that's what we're doing. Uh, then they went right across the street to DC. Uh, they went to DC Comics, all walked in together. Uh, Todd walks in there and he, he goes to DC and DC, the DC guys are like, oh, you're leaving Marvel? Well, c- come on, we'll hire all of you. Come on, come on over. And, and they said, no, 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 we didn't come here for jobs. Uh, we just came here to tell you that that we're also doing this. We're, we're, we're going over and forming our own company. So I thought it was hilarious. They almost like, they resigned from Marvel and then almost just like also resigned from DC, a company they didn't work at just, just because they could, just because they could have all had jobs there in a split second. And Todd just said, no, we're going to, we're going to tell everybody to fuck off. We're going to tell everybody we are the, the shit. We are the ones bringing in money. We are the most talented people in this damn business. See you later. We're doing our own thing. We'll see you in our time. What, what I love about the film is at one point, I think, uh, I think McFarlane is yelling at Tom Brevert and he's, he, you know, at one point, I think, uh, I think it's Liefeld who does the impersonation. He's like, yeah, Todd was just yelling at him, really giving it to him. And then he brought up the watch. He, and basically he's right, like, yeah, yeah my father true. worked for the same company for 20 years. And they, he worked at a factory at and they gave him a watch. And where's my watch? Huh? My father got a watch. Where's my watch? I made you millions I of dollars. I didn't get a t-shirt. <laughs> Yeah, so it was hilarious. I mean, I think for, for some of them, it was more personal than others. For Jim Lee, there was nothing personal about this. I can, ima- I can imagine Jim Lee being like the quiet Asian guy like, in the corner. Yeah, like, he's just standing there. I don't want to get and And Rob is like a 21-year-old kid at this point. He's just like standing there like scared. Like, what is this crazy man doing here? What am I even doing? But, you know, he's, he's, he's going along with it. Was was, was watching Todd uh, Todd McFarlane go off and these guys like, man, what I would pay to be a fly on the wall. And because even just hearing these guys describe it is hilarious. But actually being able to see this I, and like being able to see the look on the editor's faces. And I mean, that I, you couldn't put a price on that. If we ever invent time travel, boy. Although I guess if we interrupt the meeting, that would you know that would mess with the time stream, so we don't want to do. Yeah, that. but like, uh, um, just just the ability to watch that—it's a lot. The way the, it always pops up in my mind is that scene from Captain Phillips when the Somali pirates get into the Maersk, Alabama, and they look at Tom Hanks and they're like, "Look at me, I am the captain now." That's what it's always reminded me of. Now. Yeah. I am the captain now. Yeah, that's Todd. That's totally Todd. He is the captain now. So they go Look at me. Look at me. I am image. the captain now. <laughs> and and each, each I want to see Todd doing that now. And each uh, the, the premise behind Image here was that everybody owned their own shit. Everybody owned their own creations. Uh, the company would own nothing except for the logo, and it would it would do the publishing, and the publishing would all be under this one company. And they would only own the name and the logo that would be co-owned by the company. Everything else is owned by the creators. Period. Uh, that was the idea. So each partner in the company became a- a- autonomous within their own six individual 
individual studios. Can you name all six studios? Can I? Oh. Todd McFarlane Productions, Extreme Studios, Wildstorm, Jim Lee, uh, Mark Sylvester. What's his? Oh, he, he, uh, mm. he, no, Top Cow is Jim Valentino. Yes. I, I don't even know if I mentioned so, Jim so, Valentino. So you got four. He was doing Guardians at the yeah, time. Yeah, so you got four. Yeah, Jim Valentino. Uh, Help me out. I just watched his whole documentary and I can't Darn it. all of them. You said, well, I don't know Will Will Spartacios because he he ended up not he joined but he didn't actually I think his family had some health issues or something like that I don't remember exactly but he he ended up coming back later on with uh, Wetworks he wasn't really he actually became out of the mix uh, pretty quickly and didn't wasn't one of the yeah there watches. were a lot they all had their each one and each one had their own different flair and each one could go ahead and hire their own staff of inkers and colorists and anyone else they needed so that way they could all remain independent they'd be. Uh, you know, in charge of their own deadlines, their own editorial content and that stuff. And all they had to do was basically use the image branding and resources so that way they could get their books on shelves and stores. So Shadow Line, that was Jim Valentine. That was Shadow it. Line. And, uh, you know, th- this was all done so that way they could all have their own independence but use each other's name recognition in order to expand the image brand. Right. And do the publishing all together. And, and so they don't have to do all that on their own. Uh, just made things easier, but while still maintaining their own autonomy, uh, their own creativity, everything that they did not have with Marvel and certainly would not have if they went to DC either. Uh, they came up with the image name uh, by it basically came from this Andre Agassi ad. I think it was might have been a Nike ad, but it had Andre Agassi in it. And uh, he just says, image is everything. Uh, so that was the idea that they were. People, their brand was, these guys all got famous because of their pictures. Let's be honest. It was never because of their stories or anything like that, even though I think some of them are actually decent writers. Eric Larson, to me, is the best writer of them all. No no question about it. He's the one that's written his own book for the last uh, nearly 30 years at this point. Uh, but these guys became famous and well-known because of the imagery, because of the unique imagery of their you know of their art, uh, which is you know, very unique uh, and very different than a lot of the art we had seen for decades prior. So that's what, that's what they crafted that whole uh, brand around. So right off the bat we saw a few books right away i believe the very first books released were young blood uh then wildcats and savage dragon and of course spawn uh were, were in that first batch and right off the bat young blood sold like five hundred thousand out of the gate which might not seem like a lot compared to say x-force number you know x-force number one at five million uh but that was a lot. That was huge for an independent comic book that didn't have any of the marketing behind it uh, from that Marvel had. Uh, didn't have millions and millions of dollars of budget. Uh, this book sold entirely on the back of uh, uh, all these books. Really sold entirely on the backs of their names. Uh, but at the end of the day, these guys were making more by more or just as much, depending on you know case by case basis here by sell, by using their own brand and their own name and keeping all of that money in their own studio than they would just you know doing this stuff and working for Marvel. So even though the books sold you know what what might seem like low sales now if you're looking just compared to Marvel these were not low sales these are very very high sales even for most regular Marvel and DC books uh, to sell five hundred thousand of these books out of the gate which is insane for a non Marvel or DC. Comic. Yeah, I mean as you mentioned, I mean the, these are titles that no one had ever heard. Of. There had been a preview book that was sent out to stores, and what this preview book had was it basically had some sample art from the first couple pages of each one, and 
uh, that that was about it. And I don't even think it was a preview that was available for readers. It was something just to send out to stores so that way they could solicit it. And I think our friend Rocky Farenberg, he's a giant comic collector and he, uh, you know, he grades and sells comics himself. And uh, he actually has some of those old preview books. And what's crazy about them is up until I think about 15 years ago, preview books that were sent to stores, they were of the full issues of new comics and they were all in black and white so i think he's got one, some of the ones for image or another comic where you just get to see those uh first two black and white uh previews for this whole new line coming from a company that really just came out of nowhere yeah exactly and like i said these guys were blowing up and uh they quickly uh, by august of 92 not only were they blowing up uh and just doing good sales they actually became ahead of DC Comics in August of 1992. And whereas DC had dozens of books at this point, they sold more books with six books. Six books that they were publishing from these six different creators sold more comics than DC Comics by August of 92. That is absolutely insane. Yeah, I mean, think how DC felt. They they had at least, uh, you know, they had Superman. And they had them all in their office. They probably, I mean, they said, Todd said they weren't there for jobs. But DC probably, I mean, everybody's got a price, as the Million Dollar Man once said. They probably could have whipped out the checkbook and, you know, give them a few million each if they had, had thought that big at the time, if they wanted to. They probably could have launched a whole line of books under DC if they really wanted to. They had that opportunity, even if that's not why they went over there. And looking back, they probably said, man, we should just whipped out the, that, that checkbook right there. Well, I mean, the, the big thing, and this is one reason why DC was slumping. I mean, DC was already uh, creating a massive deficit between what they were selling and what Marvel was selling. And there's this real bad reputation of DC in the late 80s, early 90s, where their books were just flat. I mean, Batman wasn't facing anyone scary. Green Lantern was cartoony. Superman was too overpowered. And I don't think Wonder Woman was around doing much. You have the new Teen, Titan, Teen Titans that were out with Deathstroke. Um, but other than that, their their stuff was just not doing well. So not only was it flat, but you know this also speaks something of the bigger issues going on with the industry. As you mentioned, when they go went over to DC, one of the things that the DC editors tried saying was, "Listen, we worked up with a new contract, uh, so that way we're really going to benefit our writers and artists. So that way they get more royalties and they get more say in the editorial direction." And Todd just looks at them and he's like. But when you did that, did you consult a single writer or artist? And there was silence there. And they just said, that's exactly why. We're leaving. He said that the pregnant pause told me everything. Yeah. Is what that yeah. Said the film. yeah. Yeah. If someone hesitates because they don't want them, you know the answer. That's pretty much how that goes. Um, yeah. They even took credit. I mean, Rob took credit in the movie. They said, we broke Batman's back. We killed Superman because, you know, they saw that as DC re responding by saying, oh, my God, wh what are we doing? Like these guys, these six guys just outsold us with six books. Like, what are we doing? We have to we have to bring more attention to ourselves. We have to become DC again. We have to become this at least the second biggest com company in comics. So I, and I think that's, you know, I don't know if it's a direct correlation, but I, I think it's if I'm Rob Liefeld, I'm probably going to say the same thing. I'm probably going to brag about the same thing because it's hard to see it as anything else. It's pretty Pretty damn coincidental, it if it is. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, let's see. There was more. So those are the initial books. Uh, Young Blood Wildcats, Cyber Force. Uh, let's see. Young Blood Wildcats, Spawn, Savage Dragon. And I think I named them all. Oh, Shadowhawk. That's the one I always forget about. That's the that's the Mark Silvestri line. For some reason, I forget about that one all the time. 
or not, not the one. I always confuse Mark Sylvester and Jim Valentino. I don't know why I do because they're they're totally different. Their 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 stuff Jim is Valentino with Shadowhawk. Yeah, Jim Valentino. Is Shadowhawk. Shadowhawk's the one I always forget about because he became more of a behind the scenes sort of publisher kind of guy. Yeah, I think he was. I think he I was. I think he was the president of the company for a little bit. Like he just did like the the paperwork and stuff. And I I can't say that I even that I ever read a single issue of Shadowhawk. I think that's the one image creator I never even. Maybe I did at some point. I have no idea, but I certainly it certainly doesn't stand out in my mind. I think in Youngblood issue three, what they did was they put uh, Shadowhawk in the back of it. This is something that I don't like about the nineties. You had a lot of gimmicks going on, and one of them was the they had those two. They did those two stories. Yeah, but but you Youngblood had to flip it over and turn it around. So you yeah, that was you annoying. have to Super you have annoying. to decide which cut which side of the cover you like more. And then when you do it, you feel like you're missing one whole comic. I don't like it, but uh, you know, not to get too far ahead. My impression of Image as I went back and I got a whole bunch of Youngblood and some of these other things like. You see them, it's like, okay, how, how do I put it? It's like, you know, you've done your, your big hits and then you want to go ahead and go perform in front of a big audience and you want to play your new experimental stuff. You want to play your originals. It was like, oh, we it's don't like, want to hear the originals, the, the new songs. Yeah. All their stuff is... Play, play Deadpool and Cable. All, all their stuff is very, very similar to the stuff that they were doing. Like, there was one series coming out that was labeled Executioners, and the X was super big. And when you looked at them, if you blinked <laughs> too fast, you would think you were looking at the X-Men. And Marvel actually sued Image because of that. So they had to go ahead and change the title. And, uh, you know, for Shadowhawk, he looked a bit too much like Wolverine. So they started... So they started much. suit the claws, yeah. the exact same mask. So it's one of those situations where it's like, yeah, they're doing a lot of new stuff, but they also know what sells, and that's you know they they know what people want. And if you're like you know a lot of people at the time, you're a you're a teenage boy going through puberty. My God, it doesn't matter what the story is about. The way Liefeld draws women is insane, and same goes for Jim Lee. Yeah, Jim Lee's number one. Yes, as as that goes, I would, I would the X Men swimsuit issue from 1992. Yes, I'm trying to <laughs> find it. Yes. Yep, that happened. That did indeed happen. And, uh, you know, as these books sold, um, they were, now they sold, they did well, but they were also, you know, they were, they were criticized as well because they were, they were not necessarily critically acclaimed works. They were just popular with fans. And, um, you know, I think that it's not a coincidence. The books that ended up staying around long term are the two characters that were probably the most unique and that their creators, well, maybe not so much in the case of Todd McFarlane, although he probably did stick around longer than most image creators with with their works because a lot of these went to the wayside fairly quickly after a couple of years. Uh, but the two characters that are around still to this day being published regularly are Spawn and, in their original numbering, mind you, are Spawn and Savage Dragon. And I think those were the probably of all of these new creations, probably the most unique characters by far the, the ones that didn't necessarily seem like they were just straight up ripoffs of other characters we've seen uh, about a year ago uh spawn and todd mcfarlane actually got in the guinness book of world records for the longest running uh creator owned title ever at issue 300 of spawn possible? how is that possible Did it, oh because it came out just before savage yeah. dragon it, it, it's about That's a year it. ago i have that it's a it's a giant like it's a giant title. book Eric Larson deserves the kudos because Todd missed stopped making those books forever ago. But I mean, he makes them, but he doesn't make, you know, make them fight. Speak. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm an Eric Larson fanboy. What can I say? It is what it is. 
That will never change. Because I, I mean, the, what I love about Savage Dragon, I think why I'm so tied to Savage Dragon, why it's my favorite book of all time, is is because I've been in from the beginning. And that's what was so unique about Image uh, for fans at the time. And for me, I was a relatively new fan. I'd only been into comics for a year or so. When you get into Spider-Man, when you get into Batman, it doesn't matter where you come in. There's 100 years of history, 80 years of history at this time. Uh, my numbers are off. Uh, 70, 60 years of history, depending on the book. And it, it's hard. no matter what, you ha- you're going to read a book and not know something. You're not going to know a character. You're not going to know a reference. These were actually a time where you could get in from the ground floor on a brand new character and you didn't, you weren't missing anything because you actually could get in in the beginning. And if you're like me and stuck around with one of these characters, I stuck with Spawn for a little while. I think I have the first 15 issues of Spawn, the original issues at my house, uh, my, my, the, the vault, the Connecticut vault, if you will. Uh, but uh, I, I am still reading Savage Dragon right now. And that is just so rewarding to have the same, to be from the number one. I mean, imagine if you read Spider-Man number one and you were still reading Spider-Man now. Wow. That, that could that person, that, that person could exist. That person probably That's an old ass person, person, but that's still a person. That's a, that's a really old person, but yeah. Uh, but this is without the numbering breaking. It's still the same numbering and still referencing the same stories without changing continuity. I think what I really love, this might turn into a whole rant about Savage Dragon for the rest of the episode. What I love more than anything about Savage Dragon is that the the story takes place in real time. So in 1992, when Savage Dragon came out, it was 1992. Now in Savage Dragon, it's 2020, and all the characters have aged appropriately. It t- it's not like Marvel, where you know where Peter Parker's always he's 18, and when he ages, he's t- maybe he gets to 25, and then you know they never age, and then they just update the continuity. Like suddenly, instead of Vietnam, it's the Gulf War. Suddenly, instead of the Gulf War, it's the Afghanistan War. You don't have any of that, at least with Savage Dragon. Uh, it's all what it is because it's all taking place in real time. They don't need to, to fudge the time to make it make sense. It just makes well a lot of things don't make sense as a comic book, but time wise, it makes perfect sense and it's so rewarding to me as a fan to be able to see 30 years of that unfold in real time i mean it's just it's incredibly rewarding and it's not that often you get to stick with a comic for 30 years with the original artist and original writer i mean i don't think that happens i don't think it's ever happened ever actually even to this day because the eric as far as i know eric larson is the only one to do well i think mobius is it mobius or no i'm sorry it's cerebus cerebus cerebrus I'm not sure how to say it. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think that comic was 300 issues by the same creator. I'm going to find this out. Uh, but So that's, I think Eric Larson doesn't technically have the record, but Eric Larson has done it for the, the most number of years because not his comics don't don't always come out on he time. He took a so break, as, didn't he? As, like, wasn't there like a halt in the run? He's taken many, uh, he's never taken an official, this is going on a hiatus break, but there have been times when there have been uh, months between issues, for sure. I mean, at one point, uh, down down the line here, uh, Eric Larson, for about a year, becomes the publisher at Image. So it really slowed down at that point. Because uh, you, know, you have to, you have to steer the ship at that point, make sure people are meeting their exactly. deadlines and sending out books on time. Exactly. And that is a perfect segue into one of the first issues that Image Comics uh, started to have was that some of these creators, first of all, a lot of them, like Jim Lee, started uh, expanding his studio. So he was bringing other creators into Wildstorm. They were starting to let other publishers join under similar deals, like Sam Keith with the Max. Um, They would have uh, other publishers that while they weren't partners, they would also be able to join, keep their own creations. And even even people that came into other banners, like any creators that came in under Wildstorm, uh, they all got to keep their own creations too. But what happened is a lot of these guys 
they were just comic book artists, comic book writers, creators, but now they're publishers. And now they're all individual businessmen too. And some of them were better at that than others. You know, some of them started to miss deadlines. A lot of uh, image books were being delayed. Books were shipping late. Uh, it was causing a lot of problems. Um, they said that, I think, I forget who, who exactly in the, in the movie that said this, but someone said like, yeah, they were just turning into rich guys who forgot to write their own books. You know, like they, they got into so much other stuff. And then, of course, Todd as the ringleader, uh, he had like a meeting with them and he Todd just scolded them. Todd, Todd uh, you know, Todd, Todd started scolding them about you got to get your books out on time. You, you, you know, you, you got to stay on top of the business. You can't just be doing this and that. Of course, at the same time, Todd was also pulling back from penciling and uh, hardly ever, you know, touched a pencil again. I think for like the last twenty years, he was, except for the he was getting into that cover. toy money, yo. Right. So Todd, I mean, Todd was the true businessman because he's the one that goes off. Eventually, started his own uh, toy business. Of course, McFarlane Toys, which is probably, uh, I'm just gonna guess, has made him. A way more than the comic books ever did because that he is truly a powerhouse in the toy industry and that goes way beyond comic books. My God, like I've I've got two examples literally right next to me. This is a limited edition GameStop exclusive Bloodshot from McFarlane Toys. This thing was is that the Vin Diesel, yeah, the Bloodshot? Vin Diesel Bloodshot because he doesn't have hair, which. <laughs> Kind of bugs me, but it's like, you know, super articulate. And that's the thing about toys. Like with McFarlane toys, they're different. This one, like this one is still in the box. It's going to stay in the box. Super articulate. It's like a piece of art with everything. And I mean, what's, what's super funny is that, you know, here's an example of what could have been because right here I have Venom from Hasbro. Now Venom is a Marvel property created by uh mcfarlane and he still gets royalties but he, he what's hilarious is that he completely changed the toy industry because if you had taken a marvel toy like 20 years ago they're super non-articulate cheap made in china this and then and this is from hasbro and this is like you know 30 30 dollars because it was limited and i had to pre-order it they compare it to his one from his studio they're basically the same like when Todd McFarlane does something, he gets in incredibly underrated because he doesn't just go off and do his own thing. He disrupts industries. He creates company. Did it in comics? Yeah, he creates toys. companies out of spite. Yeah, so th there's uh, so much going on. Like Spawn is becoming sort of mainstream. Uh, you know, Spawn gets his own movie. Uh, Todd's getting into toys, and uh, you know, the books. Everybody's being pulled different ways because they're all becoming publishers. Like, like they describe Extreme Studios as just kind of like a clubhouse. Like uh, Rob was just hiring like random people he met who he, he met and liked their art, and be like, he'd hire people on the spot. He'd be like, oh, you're hired. Uh, I, I, I really love the story of how they hired Eric Stevenson, who eventually <laughs> became the publisher of Image. Um, he was just like a fan, and he was talking to Jim Lee. And he was uh, like at some convention or comic signing, and he was like telling Jim Lee, like you know, I got to be honest, I, I, he, he was going off about Youngblood and how the story sucked and how the layout sucked and how he just you know he loved what those guys were doing, but he just he thought the, the everything about the Youngblood story was just terrible. And so Jim Lee goes, "Hey, go tell that to Rob." And then, like he calls Rob over and he's like, "Hey, hey just tell tell Rob everything I just told you just told me." And he's like, uh, "Okay." So he proceeds to tell Rob everything that sucks about Youngblood, everything that sucks about the storytelling, and he's like, "I'm gonna hire you as my editor." <laughs> He's like, you want to work for me? He's like, uh, okay. And then Eric Stevenson becomes uh, editor of Extreme Studios and eventually uh, publisher of uh, of Image Comics. And that was just because he went, it was just a fan that went around telling them how much Youngblood sucked. <laughs> that's my favorite. I think that's actually my favorite story of anybody's career path in this whole movie. I mean, it's, uh, th th this is a, this is a, because I never could have been Todd McFarlane or Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld. I don't have that kind of talent that they have with the art, but I could have been Eric Stevenson. <laughs> I could have just been a fan talking to Jim Lee, telling him why this book sucked, and then I get hired. And, and I mean, that, that's the me. beautiful thing about um, 
about about image and what you know even what Liefeld would do at Awesome Studios like uh they they were giving a chance to a lot of people I think Liefeld brought up that in Los Angeles uh he would just go to different stores and he would meet people and he'd see samples of work they'd have on them just hire them on the spot. spot like nobody does that people want to say and you know it's funny uh you know for for those of you that don't know I work for a for a tech startup it's a social media company, and I have met uh, clients who happen to be comic book people. And when I tell them uh, I'm into comics too, we start talking about. It. I like to tell them that my company is kind of like the image comics of social media. We're young, disruptive, and we're making a scene. And you know, it's it's that type of flavor that you want in something because just because it's small doesn't mean it can't make an impact. And with Image, when they took that number two spot from DC, and then they're just raking in all this money. From toys, from games, from movies. I mean, it took like five years from when Spawn was first introduced to get a movie. Spider-Man had been around for 40 before he got his first film. Wonder Woman had been around for like 70 before she was in a movie that wasn't even her own movie. It was Batman v Superman, Donna Justice. So when the, when Mark says these guys were big, they were bigger than big. They were huge. Yeah, they were massive. And they were becoming so big within their own studios. I mean, Rob, especially, um, Rob was just throwing money around. Like I said, he was throwing money at everybody. He was just trying to bring in every creator he could. And, you know, they were making cash and they were spending cash. I mean, there was, Rob was, uh, well, like buying a car for everybody. Like anybody that Rob wanted, he'd be like, oh, you want a, you want a Porsche? I buy you a Porsche. Like any, and one day, I think there was a story later in the movie where Rob looks out, uh, like in the parking lot. He's like, you see all those cars? He's like, I bought all those cars. <laughs> Like Rob just spent money like some, there's no tomorrow. Some baller energy he, right Rob there. Rob definitely has massive baller energy. Uh, but these things do catch up at, at times. And, you know, between delays and just things coming back to reality at some point, um, the, like, and this is just not Image Comics. This is the entire comic book industry really started to decline uh, in the mid to late 90s as a speculation bubble crashed. Uh, all those people racing out to buy all these number ones, Youngblood number one, Spawn number one, Wildcats number one, uh, X-Men number one, all of Death of Superman, all of Batman Nightfall. People were just buying these books like mad. Uh, this led to a huge expansion. Oh, I just realized yeah. I can I can tell you how much those cost. Okay, let's hear it. Oh yeah. So for right. Young Blood issue zero, yeah, for Young Blood issue zero, one ninety five. Ah, okay. So they were a little. That was a little pricey for the time, actually. Really? I think in nineties so. money. Yeah, I feel like I was paying one twenty five, one fifty for most normal comics at, at that point. Wow. When I first started reading comics, my Marvel comics, my weekly comics were all one twenty five, and then it later became one fifty, which was like, oh god, one fifty. And now I'd be like, wow, one fifty would be amazing. Let me, let me see that that spawn and i think mcfarlane has like an ethical reason why he doesn't want to go above 299 i paid 850 for this spawn 311 with the chadwick boseman cover because i pre-ordered it because the you know everyone thought it was gonna sell out and i wanted to grab a copy so i it's it's listed at 299 i paid 850 for it and then chadwick boseman would have made a great oh spawn. my oh my gosh he would okay this stillwater issue one an image title, three ninety nine. It's not surprising. So you know, it's like I think the page count is the same. Why the fuck did I pay a dollar more? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, forget forget oh, about it. Anyway, we'll do a whole nineties anyway, money about comics prices at some point. Maybe not. Nineties money. Uh, but yeah, the, things were blowing up. It, like things blew up in the early nineties, but then there was with every bubble there is an inevitable crash. And the amazing stat that I heard in this film that I didn't, I never heard that before since nineteen ninety seven. Only five comics had sold over 300,000 copies. Only five comics, period. 
That is insane coming off a time when you saw X-Men number one just sell 8.2 million. When you saw uh, X-Force number one sell 5 million. When you saw this Youngblood number one sell 500,000 the first day and they have to go into a second print. Only five comics after 97 sold 300,000 copies. That is how much the comic book bubble crashed. It crashed and it crashed hard. And it all, almost put Marvel out of business, which is why they ended up selling all the rights, which is why today they don't have the movie rights to Spider-Man, to the Incredible Hulk. Uh, well, they finally got the X-Men and Fantastic Four back through the Fox deal. But uh, that is that is how that all happened, because uh, Marvel almost did not survive this crash. I, I would blame, you know, I wouldn't just blame speculators. I think that's something that's often brought up. But, you know, for Marvel specifically, they were always going downhill. One, they were a publicly traded company. They then became private and then in 2008 bought, were bought out by Disney. But, you know, I mentioned like the sticker factory. Like Marvel didn't think they were getting into the sticker business because when you buy a full on sticker company, what do you inherit? You inherit all the assets, but you also inherit all the people. And with all the people, you get payroll. And when you're just doing superhero and comic book theme stuff, what you've done is you've just kind of kill all your other range so i mean that that company i forget the name of it that was sucking money from them so while it was the comic book industry at large it's also just really bad business practices the 90s was definitely the decade of excess for comic book companies that we've never seen and i don't think we'll ever see again for good and bad reasons uh, they they were spreading themselves everywhere. So the the initial sort of a uh, happy go lucky happiness of image uh, started to sort of fade away in some ways, uh, just because you know all these creators are kind of kind of done their own things, and there started to become some tensions. There started to even be some competition between the various studios. Uh, I guess there there are stories of of uh, Rob Liefeld uh, like tr- trying to get certain creators uh, from Wildstorm, uh, and there was sort of a feud there. Uh, there were there were just all all these different stories you were hearing about. You know, now it it, it stopped being a family and started to be like an internal competition. Um, and <laughs> to the point that eventually, what happened was um, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee both decided to go off and basically go back to Marvel. This is for Heroes Reborn. This is when they did a one-year-long remake of Captain America, Iron Man, Fantastic Four, was it Thor? And the Avengers. And the Avengers, right. Uh, And they each got $3 million to do Heroes Reborn. And uh, this really created an even bigger rift among creators because other creators were really pissed. Like Todd McFarlane saw this as a a direct conflict of interest. I mean, here you are, a partner in this company, uh, in this company, and you're now taking $3 million dollars to go make books for a rival while your other books are you're barely even doing your other books anymore uh in, the, in their case they were no longer working on their other books themselves because they put all their time and effort into uh, you know working on these marvel books so this is when the the real split uh you know an image started to really take hold i i wanna i wanna say that i totally get where todd is coming from but mark let, let me ask you this if you went off and you started your own original comic book, and then one day DC sent you an email and said, Mark, how would you like to make Batman? Yeah, obviously. I mean, What would you do? Although, in fairness, I mean, these guys had already worked on... Well, they hadn't worked on these specific characters, necessarily. They had worked on other characters. They, they, wanted, they wanted the toy box. As far as, uh, you know, the crew was concerned, you know, they, uh, Liefeld had really kind of remade the the x universe through uh his his new mutants run which would eventually turn into x-force mcfarlane had spider-man and hulk and And it's not like mcfarlane uh, had not gone and done his own thing either i mean it wasn't another comic book company uh, but he just went and started mcfarlane toys without consulting anybody else not that he should have had to he shouldn't but but you know 
maybe if you're gonna if you're, if you're gonna not. make if you're gonna make figures off your stuff and you happen to be connected to this company where obviously they're gonna want to make figures, uh, it, it just kind of makes sense. And you know, when when you're dealing with a certain caliber of characters as well, you know, Spider Man was hot, X Men was hot, Hulk was hot. Everyone there got to do it. You know, Sylvester had Alpha Flight for a little bit, which turned into a best selling comic. But when you're saying you can recreate the the, like the crown jewels of the Marvel universe from issue one, and we give you full reign editorially to do it. Like you know, th- those Heroes Reborn comics catch a lot of shit, but I think they they're sold. some of my favorite. They saw yeah, the hit uh, Liefeld's Avengers issue one is still the best selling Avengers ever. And let's remember this: in two thousand five or two thousand four, two thousand five, that's when New Avengers hit stores and it had wolverine and spider-man and it still did not sell as much as liefeld's avengers all right so yeah that that really led to you know besides todd going off and doing his own thing that didn't really ruffle feathers because it wasn't direct competition but this some some of the creators did see this as you know kind of a slap in the face like we're just going right back to marvel where we all left together you know in unison five years ago um i i wouldn't hate on it you know i i think if we start our own comp company we each have our 50 50 agreement i don't think either of us would begrudge the other if we went off to write to batman or to write x-men i'd want in on it i'd want to come i'd want in i'd want to come along please take me let me be i'm a shill i will i will shill out maybe it, maybe it's a dignity thing like my, my thing is this like if i get to do something that i can say i get to do and i can make money at the same time business is business yeah. three million is three million i don't care what else you're doing <laughs> uh but yeah uh, then after this point is when you saw like the competition between studios really became uh more uh you know more transparent because they were starting to put their own logos on the cover now instead of the image logos so now you had like top cow was on the cover instead or you'd have extreme on the cover um and there it really did start to get bitter like uh there was a lot of competition at one point for this artist michael turner and he ended up signing with top cow and uh at one point rob uh tried like they, they tried to what is i forget who what his name was but it was one of the guys working for rob rod had rob had him call and try to offer um michael michael turner uh away you know and then mark Silvestri gets on the phone because he the head of top cow and he's just like what are you doing why are you trying to call away michael turner why are you trying to, to sign him away and uh the guy I, i'm sorry i forgot his name uh but he goes back to rob he's like uh i think mark Silvestri just yelled at me for for us trying to sign michael turner so there this is becoming less of a family in some ways at least between certain studios and more of just like a rivalry and not a, not a friend not in the friendly way either i mean it was starting to get they're starting to become tensions to the point that rob got so sick of dealing with some things that he when he wanted to create some new characters instead of making them under extreme studios with image he created another comic book company so rob goes out and creates maximum press and this is what really caused the final uh rift that led to them confronting rob lifo they're like dude it's one thing if you're gonna go off to marvel and take three million bucks like we get that you're gonna go start another comic book company and your own independent comic book company when we already formed this independent comic book company together where you already own your own stuff what's the deal with this and and rob was just like you know he didn't give a shit rob's like well i'm not gonna not do it so you know, that's the way that's going to be. I was <laughs> like, I, I'm doing it and that's it. And um, yeah, I mean, but- it's like Paul McCartney in the Beatles, Paul McCartney by himself. And then, no, wait, Paul McCartney didn't marry Yoko Ono. That was Ringo no, Starr, that- right? <laughs> no, that was John Lennon. That was John. Okay, jo- let, let me we'll let me fix Beatles it. John- sis- Beatles history on a different podcast. John-, John Lennon and the Beatles. John be Lennon for that stuff, but John Lennon with Yoko. Yoko's the chick from from the ring, right? Who crawls out of the well? 
Is <laughs> <laughs> this all a setup for that joke? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. So they this become this then becomes sort of a uh, a Richard Nixon uh, was he impeached or did he resign situation because uh, Rob did decide they had they were hold- holding a formal meeting in which they were going to vote Rob out of the company and before they held the meeting Rob resigned. So then every time they tell the story, you know, Rob gets pissed because he says, you know, they oh they'll say that I didn't resign. They say they they and they still did meet that have that meeting and vote vote him out. But he's like, you know, Rob, I don't know why it says here that, you know, on this wizard, did you see wizard said that you quit? He's like, well, I did. I resigned. That's the truth. That's the order of events. <laughs> and it's all quite amusing to me, to be honest, the whole situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it's quite sad. But in a way, I mean, with with challenges like that, you, you have to see growth. And at the end of the day, what what uh, what Jim Lee and what life held did over for heroes reborn is is awesome i think jim lee probably has my personal favorite fantastic four run you basically got to see 60 years of fantastic four history crammed in like 12 issues and uh you know the heroes return that uh life held returned to do back in like 2006 with uh jeff Loeb is a fantastic miniseries I mean, it's it's one of those moments where it's like they did it as much for the money as much as they did to say, I got to write a Captain America issue one and I got to write my story because, yeah, it's one thing to do that. But let, let's just let's just put it on the table. Certain characters are beyond just properties. Batman is a mythological figure. Yeah. Superman might as well be put up there with Zeus and Buddha. Like, there's it's a reason just... fans complain and go, and if millions of people will get upset when they don't feel their characters are being treated properly, when they don't think Superman is portrayed properly in a movie, for example, uh, because the the character is so far beyond what a publisher could make it now, what, an, what a, a certain writer or producer or filmmaker can make it. The characters are iconic, and when you veer too far from what the the collective culture sees as that iconotry iconotry i think that's the word i made up uh i cannot you're going to hear from them <laughs> you're going to hear from them one way or another because you know it's, it's beyond anyone's control at this point the characters have taken on a mythology of their own uh at, i mean i could not have said it better really well good i'm glad i interrupted you to say it <laughs> <laughs> it would suck if you could have said it better and then I said it worse. So I'm glad it worked out that way. Uh, but yeah, actually, after Rob left is when Mark Sylvester came back because the only reason he really left was because he was really pissed off at Rob Liefeld. So they're back to uh, a core six at this point because Will's, Will's Portacio had come back uh, to Image. But uh, the split did continue because uh, Jim Lee, I guess, in this whole thing with Heroes Reborn, he was really he really wanted to become editor in chief of Marvel. That was he was really pushing for. Rob has talked about this on his show, Rob Observations, uh, a couple of times. Um, but that's not what happened. They uh, Marvel did not uh you know buy wildstorm and make jim lee editor-in-chief but that did happen over at dc comics so eventually jim lee uh right after heroes reborn made a deal with dc comics and he sold wildstorm studios to dc comics that is why to this day we see things like the character grifter appearing in batman for example uh that is why we saw like stormwatch and wildcats appear in flashpoint and suddenly they're like sort of part of the dc universe and then sort of not and it's not it's kind of confusing that's why you see things uh like this is actually a big part of dc continuity and mythology now the source wall that is a Stormwatch concept that came out uh, in like 1999 during Warren Ellis's run, uh, which actually, what? actually, yeah, yeah, really? uh, we're going to someday do. It might have been the Authority. I, I'm, I think it was actually during Stormwatch. Yeah, it was during Stormwatch. I'm almost positive. And then later the Authority. Uh, yeah, that 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 all came from Stormwatch. Uh, and actually, oh, wow. Stormwatch might have actually already been owned by DC at that point because I think that was 99. So, uh, but yeah, that that is all. Is that, is that, is that with like Midnighter and Apollo? 
Uh, yeah, they are actually part of the Authority book. I think they became involved. I think they appeared in the Stormwatch book, but then they became they, regular they, parts of the They appeared... Yeah, like they appeared in Stormwatch. I remember them because I have Stormwatch issue one from the New Fifty Two. Uh, yeah, and so that's now some that's of those really my familiarity. Part of DC to this day, and of course, Jim Lee is uh, an executive at DC Comics as well. What is Jim Lee's official title? Is he he's the he's the publisher. It? Publisher. He's the publisher. Yeah, there he yeah. comes back, publisher again. But being publisher at DC Comics is a little different than being publisher of Wildstorm Studios or one of the publishers of Image Comics. Because when you're the when you're the publisher at Wildstorm under Image, you are the publisher. You are doing it. Uh, you, when you are the publisher at DC Comics, you are supported by Warner Brothers, by AT and T. Uh, you know you have an infrastructure there. And you're, you're not really doing all of the work necessarily. You're more an overseer. Yeah. J- Jim, Lee, Jim Lee gets a lot of shit from people. Oh, I don't, and I don't he blame does... him one bit. Yeah. He's living like, the dream right now. He's He did the image thing. He showed he could do it. He had his fun. He made his money. He made his splash. He showed he didn't need them. And then he said, I don't need you, but I want you. <laughs> because I, I, I get to play with yeah. Batman. Let me play with your toys now. <laughs> like, 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 I think it really just comes down to that. It's like, guys, Batman. I I'm going to draw the Batman. Justice League. What am I supposed to do? Come on. I can have mine or I can have this. And I don't need to be pub- doing my own publish. I-, I don't need to do all this work. I don't need to run this business day to day. I can just go and-, and create comics. Now, of course, now he's back on the publishing side. But for a while, he was just basically sold Wildstorm and was doing a lot of creative for DC, basically however he wanted to uh, at-, at certain intervals. you know. And uh, now Jim Lee is famous for taking forever on his art. But guess what? He can take forever now. He has he has money. He doesn't need to work every day to, and draw a million pages a day. He can do the projects he wants. Uh, you know, where he work his publishing job, occasionally do some art, and what what better life could he have, really? What what I think is really awesome, not to get on too much of a tangent here, I'll make it fast, but like during the pandemic, what he did to help stores was that he was doing original sketches of characters and he was auctioning them off, and then he was giving all the proceeds from individual sketches to different stores to help them make their payroll and rent. Wow. That's a bro move. That's, that's super bro. Super bro move. So I have no uh, no harsh feeling towards Jim Lee, nor Rob Liefeld, nor anybody really, because I'm, I'm fans of all these guys ultimately. Uh, but that was basically the the end of, I guess, image phase one, uh, when Rob and Jim uh, basically left the company uh, for various reasons. Uh, but image and, and image sales started to kind of hurt at this point, because uh, Rob and Jim were two of the bigger names. You still had Spawn going regularly. You still had uh, Savage Dragon going regularly. Savage Dragon was never a huge seller or anything. Uh, but you know, Image Comics was not doing gangbusters anymore. There was a lot of different projects but a lot of them were kind of floundering and a lot of them were you know suffering you know low sales just like the entire comics books industry was at this point as well um in in the early 2000s my parents would not let me buy new image comics because they had a reputation of being basically like porn naughty very naughty. Yeah, well, it was, if she picked it was, up an Eric Larson just, Savage Dragon uh, issue, that would be absolutely accurate. <laughs> well, something like that. I can't yeah. wait till you see some of these. I mean, he's raunchy in the beginning, but like some of the issues he's put out, even in the most recent years, are like they're porn. It's it, he, <laughs> he he's trying he tries to shock more and more, you know, every year, and he does successfully. He even ch- <laughs> I mean, Eric Larson is one of the the few creators that to this day, sometimes I'll I will see a panel and go, "What you did that?" And I don't want to get any more descriptive than that. Because who knows? Someone might be listening. That's a good place to draw the line. I'm going to draw the line right here. Um, But that's that's kind of Image Phase 1. I don't think we need to go into super detail over the rest of of Image Comics history because that's really what I wanted to focus on was the uh, the Image Revolution itself. Uh, The rest of the movie just kind of goes into everything that's happened since. The short story is... 
uh, things were kind of blah with Image, and then they found Robert Kirkman. That's a short story. <laughs> because uh, Robert Kirkman came in, and uh, he basically just uh, pitched them on The Walking Dead, pitched Jim, pitched Jim Valentino on The Walking Dead, and uh, at first, Jim Valentino, I, I love Kirkman's story, too, because he was just a fan. He was actually a fan of Image Comics and just wanted to be Eric Larson when he was a kid, when he was a kid. And now, like, just a few years later, he's a young kid and he's he's pitching himself to these guys. And he pitches The Walking Dead. And, I uh, you know, Valentino's like, well, I don't know. I don't think uh, we like what you're doing. We like your work. Zombie comics don't sell. Zombie comics don't sell. So he comes up with a story. He's like, all right, look, it's not just a zombie comic. It's actually an alien invasion and these aliens are using the zombies. They're using like a, a zombie virus to, you know, turn people into zombies and start this whole alien invasion. And I'm going to be planting all these seeds in the early issues that, you know, these little Easter eggs that when the, the reveal finally comes that it's really aliens, everyone's going to be like, Oh my God, what? And then Jim's like, well, all right, I guess, I guess we've never seen that kind of spin on, on, you know, on zombies. I guess we've never seen zombies that were actually aliens. So, all right, why not? Why, why not do it? And then they get like, you know, the first issue comes out and doesn't really sell that well. It sells okay. And then the second issue doesn't really sell that well. Then the third issue sells a little more. Fourth issue sells a little more. So like, okay, this is, this is starting to go, it's starting to pick up and it started to kind of develop a cult following. But, you know, after a few, you know, after like 10, 12 issues, Jim Valentino is like, Hey, uh, Remember that alien thing? You know, you're talking about the whole alien thing. Like, we, uh, I, I don't see any of these Easter eggs or any kind of hint at, at all that there's ever going to be aliens here. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I was just, I was just full of shit with that. I just needed to pitch the book to you. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no aliens. It's, it's just zombies. Like, Fake well, it till you make it. Fake it till you make exactly. it. Exactly. They're like, well, it's selling good now. So I guess, I guess that's fine. What are we going to do? So, yeah, I mean, it, it became a cult hit. It became a cult hit comic book on its own, simply through word of mouth, because it was such a unique book. And it, we'll get into it someday, I'm sure, on, on this podcast in more detail. But, uh, and then it was already a huge seller. It was already, already becoming one of the you know biggest sellers in local comic shops. It was actually helping revive a lot of comics shops i mean it was really generating buzz and that's even before the tv show so then once the tv show hit see you later i mean it just took off like 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 gangbusters and now robert kirkman is going to live on that that zombie money for the rest of his life Uh, of course in there he also uh launched and did the entire run of invincible as well uh so he now we're coming full circle we started off talking about your your love of image coming in through through the walking dead and through invincible and and that's where things kind of leave off and now to this day uh i'd say image is still one of the companies that puts out one of the most unique books there they're a great company uh we'll have to do an issue an an issue here i go Uh, an episode on valiant at some day we didn't really we didn't really talk about valiant too much but image image kind of stole valiant thunder because Valiant started not much longer, not much before Image. Uh, they had a little bit of buzz. Jim, Jim Shooter. Jim Shooter literally says that uh, in <laughs> an like, interview. Yeah, I mean, with, with Shooter, it was, and I think Jim Shooter's my favorite editor at Marvel. But Jim Shooter saw what these guys were doing uh, with their art and with their stories, and he tried to do it. His problem, he wasn't them, right? And neither were any of the people he hired. <laughs> yep, exactly. He was not them. He's a great. Great writer, great, uh, you know, great creator, great mind, great business mind. He's not any of these guys. Like I said, these guys are were rock stars. They were stars of their own, and they all they were like a superstar. Uh, they were the Avengers of comic books, of, of comic book creators. Then they all came together to form this super team. There was no way Jim Shooter could compete with that. Uh, I do remember a lot of buzz like at comic conventions I would go to around these these Valiant books, like Joe Casada uh, on Ninjak. That was like a huge book, the Ninjak number one coming out. Uh, there was buzz, but it was nothing compared to what you'd see from Image. Just just nothing. Image just blew them out of the water, and it's too bad because I probably it's it's quite possible that. 
you know, Valiant could have been a lot bigger than it was had it not been for Image stealing so much of that thunder. But I, I, Valiant's put out a lot of great books over the years, and we're going to definitely dig into them uh, at some point down the road uh, in this podcast. But uh, the epilogue, basically, we already talked about what Jim Lee's doing. He's publisher at DC Comics and does, does occasional art creative projects of his own. Uh, Eric Larson is still doing Savage Dragon to this day. Uh, no longer do, uh, publisher at Image, just doing Savage Dragon. And uh, I think that's probably taking up plenty of his time. Uh, Rob Liefeld, he actually did briefly return to Image and revive uh, Extreme Studios. I think he did like a, I don't know if it was a Youngblood revival. He did something in the in, in the between, but now he's doing yeah, you know, Young random Blood things. Is one of those, yeah, Youngblood is one of those titles that never really had an end. There's actually another it's company that just, owns Youngblood now. It's a whole weird, weird drama that I'm sure you've seen uh, Rob tweeting about. He doesn't. He doesn't own any of the license for it yeah. now. I think the only license he owns from any of his image days are for a character named uh, Profit. Oh, uh, yeah, Profit. Yep. Yeah, Profit. Which I think that was the book uh, they were trying to hire Michael Turner to write, or they were to do I, at some point. If I'm unless, yeah, I'm like they they, they wanted to do that. I mean, they had a they had Supreme, which. I don't think Liefeld made. I think Liefeld created Supreme, and then he handed it off. He handed it off to, to Alan uh, Moore. Did Supreme at one point? Alan Moore had a great Supreme run that yeah, I cannot it, find anywhere. Like this, it's not. It's, it's not in any trade back. You can't find you it can't. on in digital form. You can't find it anywhere. But I read those books when they came out, and they're awesome. And I, I really would love to revisit them. But I can't even find. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure I have most of them. Definitely not all of them, but some of them in the Connecticut Comics Vault. So I have to check. This he, out. Uh, he he. So he has the script for. For profit, he tried to get George Lucas to do it right, in the right. '90s, and every couple of years, he he uh, he tries to option it to different studios, and then because of creative differences, it, it doesn't go. Like they almost did a Young Blood movie, and even though he doesn't own the rights, they wanted to bring him on there because if you don't have young, if you don't have Rob Liefeld, yeah, you, can't do, you no know, consulting on your thing, you're not gonna do it. Yeah. And then uh, let's see, Valentino is still publishing under his own uh, line, Shadow Line. Mark Silvestri still works and uh, still has um, Top Cow production, does comics and film stuff. Um, and of course, Todd McFarlane is still Todd McFarlane. He is still putting out Spawn. He is still the publisher of Spawn. Uh, doesn't write it, doesn't do the art or anything like that. Does I think he does the occasional special cover. Uh, did he do that Chadwick Boseman cover? He did, he did yeah. that Chadwick Boseman yeah. cover. So he does the occasional yeah. you know, art when he when he feels like it, basically. And then that, That's why I buy, I, sp- I buy Spawn comics now, and not that I have anything against Spawn. It's just not really really my thing i will buy spawn comics based off whether mcfarlane does the cover because i love his artwork so much yep it's badass it certainly is and um yeah so i guess that's about it as far as the image comics revolution goes now normally when we talk about uh, a comic book storyline an event a book or what have you we do our our rating system uh, we obviously can't rate the drawing and the art on a on this story this tale but i would like to just rate we can just decide how we want to do this in our well, own Well, how heads. about this? Is it on your poll list? Are any image titles other than Savage Dragon on your poll list? Or is it just Savage Dragon? Well, I don't... Because know. I think this is telling. Savage Dragon is my poll list, <laughs> ultimately. <laughs> um, when Saga comes back, that will also be on my poll list. I don't know if you've ever read Saga. Is that the is that the one that's on, on Amazon? Um, Fables. That's Fables. No, no. Saga is a, is, is a Brian K. Vaughn Im- image book. It's uh, basically a space space drama that I'll, I will probably bring up at some point in the in this history of. This I will program. I will have to check it. It's yeah, you see here it's here's, here's my thing. Image is really bad at marketing. I will say yeah, that you gotta find, you gotta go dig through your you know you gotta find your own image books basically. Yeah, as some as somebody who's a professional in marketing and advertising, they do a terrible job. I would image call me. I will consult for free 
for a little bit. Then I'm going to ask for money. But like, at least you your know, watch. This... You just want your watch, at least. <laughs> Give me my watch. He worked at the factory for 20 years. <laughs> and they gave and him a watch. watch. Where's my yeah, watch? But, <laughs> but like, you know, for, for Stillwater, for example, there's no reviews. There's no nothing. I had to get this based off reference. And from what I can see sales-wise, you know, I think the pandemic definitely, I, I don't, I think the future of this comic is in jeopardy. I still like it. I'm going to collect it because it's an interesting story. The only way I've ever heard about an image book is by reading another image book and having and seeing ads in there because they do cross ad, you know, for other image books. Um, that's about it. Yeah, but it's like, you know, with, w- even with Marvel and DC, they will do teaser videos that they throw online. Mm-hmm. They go to cons, and I know the cons make money, but you'd think that they would be better at it. It seems like, much like you said, the only way to learn about an image book is to read another image book. And I think my my it, my problem with image is that their titles are somewhat so new and so different sometimes. I'm almost nervous to pick them up because I don't want to pick up a new series, buy a few issues in, and then leave because I feel like I'll have wasted money. And, you know, whereas Spawn is there, where Savage Dragon is there, I think what I do like about Valiant, especially since Valiant became Valiant Entertainment in 2012, uh, between 2012-2014, is that one, they knew how to market, two, they knew they knew how to self-promote with in-house ads for their books, but three... Like they they have they have a connected universe, which I also think help helps, but it's it's more consistent in a way. And with with image, it's that inconsistency, which I think is both their biggest strength and their biggest problem. I mean, it is it, it kind of is because it, it is a company where creators and owners of characters all get to do their own thing, including publishing. <laughs> you know, including you know they they kind of help each other on the marketing a little bit, but. You know, it kind of is what it is. So some are going to flounder and some are going to rise to the top. But it is a place where you're just going to see massive diversity. And if you like different kind of comics, like one of the first things you should probably do is go see what image is publishing because you're going to find a lot of different kind of comics. Like there's just no doubt about it. There's no there's no such thing as an image style at this point. There was when they first started. Uh, they all had very similar sort of splashy comic booky styles, but that is absolutely not the case now. It's, it's got to be the most diverse comic book company in existence at this point. Oh, yeah, especially when you look at, uh, you know, Kirkman's studio. Like, I would say it's very cartoony. I mean, Kirkman alone well, is diverse, even just within his own stuff, yeah. let alone, you know, what everybody else is doing. Yeah, I mean, from Walking Dead to Invincible, I mean, what, what I like about his stuff is it's very... It still blows my mind that that's the same yeah. person that wrote them, that writes them both, because they're that, so that, That's the thing. It's just, and he did it all. And what I really like is he sticks to the same artist. So it all, like, it all it, feels consistent. Yeah. I think there were two artists on Invincible and maybe two total on, on Walking Dead as well over the years. But Yeah. And I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it's got its pros and cons. But what I can't say is like, you know, while some people are like, oh, I like Marvel and not DC or oh, I like DC and not Marvel. You can't say there's anything. You, you can't just say you don't like image. Right. There has to be a specific book. You can't like comics if you like if you don't like anything from image. You know, there's just no way. Yeah, like there's so many different studios underneath the imprint. If you don't like one, I bet there's one for you. Sure. There's oh, there's an image comic for everybody. So since we can't do our traditional rating like we would rate something we just read, uh, 
I just want to have a little thought exercise. How would you just rate the Image Comics Revolution, not the film, but the Image Comics Revolution in in general? And you can rate that however you want, uh, whatever your own judgment is of how you want to look at it. But scale of one to ten with an explanation. How would you rate it? I already think you're going to go lower than me. Uh, I'm going to give it a six. Wow. A six. Okay, I need to hear this. I, I'm, I'm going to do that because, well, I think it was great for the industry, and it was great because it forced Marvel and DC to really change the game. I've read a lot of those old image books, and I don't really like them. For example, I love the artwork on Youngblood. I can't tell you really anything about the characters. It's just pretty. It's just nice to look at. <laughs> there are big explosions, there are big muscles, and the women are have big brains. So I mean, you know, it's very it's very it's very much a nineties poster art. You can you want yeah. to print any of those pages you want you want on your wall, but I couldn't tell you what's happening. Yeah, with with that it's you know, there there is no story. And even the even the guys from Image themselves tell you, yeah, our stories are not what people would consider great, yeah. but we gave people what they wanted. It's like I will go see movies that really have no coherent story and the acting isn't great because you get to see hot women, car chases, explosions, and fights. Sure. That's what you want to see sometimes. So it's fast like, and the my furious. Big, like my like my biggest thing, oh yeah, like I watched Hobbs and Shaw today. Is it gonna be a cinema classic? No. Do I watch it when it's on? Yeah. Um, you know, with, 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 with comics, my biggest thing is the, the impression and what they leave you with. And I've got very, you know, I, I've got memories for all different ranges of emotion with, with Marvel and DC comics. I've got good and sad and bad and great emotional attachments because when I look at those comics, I remember a part of my life and, you know, where was I reading this? What, what was I feeling like? What was that day like? What was, what was, what else was on my list? How, how excited was I when I got these comics? I don't have any of that with any of the image comics. All right. Well, this might also be a situation where I'm somewhat tainted by the fact that I grew up when this was happening. It was so freaking exciting to me. But I'm also maybe judging it in a different different way. I'm not necessarily just judging those initial five, six books that came out and how that went. Um, Because if I was just going to judge those books on the quality of the books overall, yeah, I'm probably going closer to like you, like a six, maybe maybe a seven. Um, But for me, I'm looking at it in the bigger picture of of what it did for the industry overall, what it's done for creators, and that creators have this outlet now. Like like if you are a creator, you want to get to Image, man. Like like that's where you want to be, and you can be anything, and there will be a home for you, and you can get published. Now people might not find your book, you know, you might have to do your own marketing, you might have to get it out there but it's there's a place you can go and you don't your only dream in comics is not going to be to draw spider-man or batman that's probably everybody's dream to do at some point but it's not the only pathway it's not the only way and you know yeah there were independent comics before image but not really like they were but they were so obscure and you know it was no one's dream to do an independent comic before before image comics you know maybe it was their dream to have their own characters uh but no one even envisioned this this thing that could be this thing that where you can actually take your own character be big 
do your own story, not be beholden to anybody else. These guys took that and turned it into a reality, a reality that simply didn't exist in the minds of most people. So to me, they changed what it means to to be a creator. They changed what it means to go into comics. And they, they changed, I think, the approach that so many take. Without, without Image Comics, without the Image Revolution, you don't have The Walking Dead. You don't have these properties that are also now turning into mainstream properties. Uh, Invincible is about to become huge too, I think. You know, The Boys, I mean, you can all credit this kind of stuff going into mainstream all with that initial image. Uh, I think the boys is the first like dynamite comics does not exist without image. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it just paved yeah, the so. way for so for so much other stuff. So, and I have a personal affinity, of course. Also, my favorite comic book of all time, Savage Dragon. I'm giving it a nine. The only reason I'm not is because of the initial quality of yeah, there wasn't great writing in those books, and there were, that's the only reason I'm not giving it a ten because it wasn't. There's there's things you can criticize, but I'm not. Those things don't concern me as much as the 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 larger huh, image, if you will, of of what Image Comics did and what those creators did by simply their their act of of defiance, the act of revolution, and that's why this film is called the Image Revolution because it was a revolution and it's a revolution we can still see the effects of today yeah i i everything you said i have no disagreement with my i only rate it so low because for me it comes down to this if i'm not consistently buying if i'm not consistently searching for specific titles from this publisher on a regular basis it would feel disingenuous for me to give it something higher so with all the impact it gets a big score but, you know, like with Stillwater, for example, I only bought issue two today because I went to my store and my comics are delayed for another week. Because yeah, yeah, well, I got to get printing. something because I'm here. I, li- I literally looked at my comic guy and I said, well, this gives me an opportunity to buy something new. So I picked up a lot of titles today of stuff I don't collect because I wanted to sample them because I was already there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I picked up a Suicide Squad, Suicide Squad comic for like the first time in probably four years. Um, I'm, I, I read it. It's interesting. I, I'm kind of confused because I don't know what's going on, but I'm probably not going to buy another Suicide Squad comic, but it's still a DC comic. I even bought, I even bought a Marvel comic. Uh, I bought issue one of US Agent, the limited series, and, uh, God, I, I keep, I, each time I'm like, oh, maybe I'll give Marvel another chance. I pick up a comic and I'm like, well, this is shit. You so picked I'm definitely US not- Agent as the one that, to get you back in? <laughs> It was, it was, it was tough week. It was tough. So, so, but you see, like, even then, even though I'm not happy with Marvel now, I still go buy old Marvel comics. And even on days like this, I will buy a Marvel comic. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, Stillwater, even though I've bought the first two issues, I'm not pulled in enough to tell my guy, I want you to put, put this on my poll list every month. And I think that also says something because my poll list is pretty diverse with Valiant, DC, and Marvel. And here I here I am, two issues into a image comic by Skybound Studios, and I'm still not there. So while I definitely understand the impact, the comics, and this is really a personal preference, if I'm not searching for them, if I'm not spending money on them, I don't think I can really give it higher than that. Well, fair enough. This is probably the most diverse uh, score, the biggest difference we've had in a score, but it's also because, you know, we don't really have a standard for how we're judging a revolution. Because <laughs> so, I, don't, I don't actually disagree with anything you said, and you don't disagree with anything I said. So we're, yeah. we're so different and so the same. Uh, that's how <laughs> that, that's how it works here on the Sucker Print Comics Podcast. Uh, gang, it's been a blast. Next week, uh, I'll be handing the reins back to Remzo for... For what? I don't know. That's part of the fun. We don't tell you what's going to happen beforehand. You just tune in and you show up here and we give you an awesome an awesome time. That's how it works. So, until next time, my friends. Do you have anything else to, to chime in with there, Remzo? Nothing much. Go ahead and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, oh, yeah. and Twitter. All that stuff. At, at Second Print Pod. Second Print Pod. And remember, read comics. 
change the world. Adios. Good night, America.